it on. Hey, I'm Robert Pearson, and this is Follow the Leader, and we're doing another blue-collar Bible scholar study, the goal of which is to take you from knowing nothing about the Bible to knowing enough about the Bible to really annoy your pastor or Sunday school teacher. Uh, you don't, don't. You, you need to be respectful to the authority they have and the, the agreed-upon social contract of a class or sermon setting. Uh, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't let them know when they misquoted the Tanakh or something in, in a respectful and, and private manner that doesn't usurp their authority before others. You know, be, you got to be manly about it and uh, honor the hierarchy that God has put in place in this world. Uh, but that doesn't mean you don't say something. Once again, if it's relevant at a, at a time that's... Uh, that is appropriate. But, you too can do that. Once you uh, understand some of the fundamentals, understand how to do your own research, read things, and uh, really you just read stuff with your eyeballs in a language you understand. And uh, that's that's a lot of it. Now, we are going to get into it. Today we're doing another book of the Bible. I'm going to do Matthew. I'm going to, I'm going to try to do one Old Testament, one New Testament book every day. So hopefully, Lord willing, at the end of a year, I'll have most of these done. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, man, I hope it works out. All right. So the Gospel of Matthew. I'll take a minute and hit some of the uh, high traffic areas. High traffic if you grew up in Sunday school or spent a good chunk of your life in church already. Uh, without, you know, not everybody looks into these things that quickly. It's not a big deal. But everybody who is a Christian should eventually mosey on over to this side of things, looking at the Greek, wanting to know what the Bible really says about X, you know. Uh, don't just stumble into church every Sunday and roll out as soon as you can so you don't miss the game. Now, Matthew is the first of what we call Gospels. Gospel just means good news. It's, uh, it's from the Greek word euangelion, and it just means good news. Literally, good news. And they mashed the words together and made the Greek word for gospel. And uh, I forget how exactly it gets in English. Most stuff goes into Latin and or German and then comes to English. Like, uh, like Jesus, uh, it's Yeshua, it's Jesus. Well, how on earth do you get a J out of that? It starts with an I in Greek, uh, makes an E sound. Starts with a Y in Hebrew, makes it Yah, Yeshua. They don't have a Y in Greek, so they're like E-Ye. And it's it's from the transition to the y, to the I and the E, you get like a Yah sound. That's how they do it. Yesu, uh, Yesus. Jesus. And so, how do, you, how do you get that? Well, you take the Greek and you put it into German. Well, the Y sound in German is the letter J. Makes a Y sound, so they spell it Jesus. And there we go. We just pull that right into English, and it's Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, which is a fun tidbit. That's why Jehovah is wrong, and it's not the name of God. Uh, because it was Yehoah, 
in uh, German. And then we pull it in English, and it's Jehovah. It's not Jehovah, it's Yehovah, which is a pronunciation of Yehovah, which is what happens when you take the vowels of Adonai and put them on the letters Y-H-W-H in, in Hebrew. That's the name of God is Y-H-W-H. You only have consonants in Hebrew. This is a huge tangent, but I, I find this kind of stuff interesting. Um, so you only have consonants in Hebrew, no vowels. And out of respect for the name of God, they didn't want to take it in vain, so they thought, you know what? If we never say it, we can't take it in vain. So the early Hebrews just never said it out loud. And so in the uh, in the medieval period, it was like the eight or nine hundreds when the uh, the earliest Masoretic text we have, the Masoretes or Masoretes, I forget which. Oh. Cars love floating in my blind spot as I'm driving. Just trying to make sure I don't get in a car accident and die. I don't want my wife to know that there's a recording of my last moments on earth. Anyway, good things now. The name of God. Uh, the Hebrews, out of reverence for it, never said it out loud because they didn't want to pronounce it wrong or use it in vain. Uh, that was the original heart and intent behind all the extra laws they made. Uh, the way they phrased it was putting a fence around the Torah. It's in the Midrash. If, if they made a bunch of crazy laws that if I never walk more than a mile on the Sabbath, then if there's a day I walk one mile and one foot, I still haven't broken God's law. I just broke man's law. Sweet. So they were trying to put like bumper guards, like in the bowling alley for the little kids. You know, they put those little bumper bumper guards up. So they were trying to put bumper guards around God's law so they would never even accidentally break God's law. That's how it started. And then a bunch of people lost the spirit of the law and the reverence and uh, started, you know, trying to take advantage of loopholes, treating it as equal to God's law. And then violating the spirit of the law of God by obeying all of these ancillary laws. Uh, anyway, so in that vein, they never pronounced the name of the Lord out loud when they came to Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. They didn't know how to say it. All we, even, even all we still have is best guesses. But when the Masoretes are putting vowel points on all the letters, so here's how you say these words, they still didn't say it out loud, and they didn't want somebody to accidentally say it out loud. So the vowel pointing doesn't match the word they put the vowel points for Adonai, which is my Lord. Uh, Adon is uh, Lord or, or Master, and then the uh, I is the suffix that means my or mine. Adonai is my Lord. And so, you know, the Lord your God or the Lord my God, that's the Adonai, and then the name of the Lord. Uh, but they don't say it out loud. So they put the vowel pointing that didn't match the letters on top of it so that you would remember not to say it out loud, to say Adonai instead when they were reading it, because it's, it's reading, uh, it's uh, verbally. So it wouldn't be, you know, the God, my Lord, or whatever. It would be Adonai, Adonai. And so that's, we just put the Lord 
in all caps in English Bibles. So whenever you see like a New American Standard, or I think the some translations of the King James do it too, uh, you'll see Lord. No, yeah, King James does it. Standard King James does it as well. Uh, you'll see Lord in all caps, and that means it's it's uh, the the four letter, the Tetragrammaton, which is a big fancy word that means four letters. The four letters. You couldn't just say the four letters. It's not fancy enough. Ivory Tower elites, we gotta have fancy words for everything to confuse the normies. Ah, uh, so huge tangent. Uh, that's that's how languages change and develop over time. And the name of the Lord God. Uh, it was a huge tangent. Matthew is writing the gospel that we get in Matthew, the Apostle Matthew. I don't care any other nonsense you want to say. Keep the the heretical criticism nonsense out. It's all based on guesswork. You don't have a single extant manuscript that has any of these partial or collected sayings or work in progress. Uh, all you have are spelling variants and uh, some ham-fisted attempts to harmonize different copies as you go. Nah, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Alright. Matthew is the tax collector. Uh, also called Levi um, in this gospel. I, I think it's, it clarifies that in this gospel. It was a big deal to be a tax collector. I don't feel like this gets explained very often. Uh, I've been in church a while, and I, I haven't heard it too many times that I can remember. So obviously, it's always prostitutes and tax collectors are like the two sinner groups that Jesus would hang out with. And it's never explained why tax collectors were considered as evil. I mean, every yeah, everybody hates the IRS, but they're not sinners. They're not evil because they work, you know, per se, because they work at the IRS. That's, uh, that's silly. Why are they considered just awful reprobate sinners in, uh, Bible times? That's weird. Well, that question is answered by uh, a little bit of historical knowledge. At the time, in the first century, Israel is occupied by Rome. They were part of the Roman Empire. Because anybody who didn't want to get dead was a part of the Roman Empire. That's how Rome rolled. They're like, hey, you're paying taxes to us now. And those people were like, sure. Or they would be murdered. That's how empires roll. So the Romans are doing their thing. And uh, Israel had just kicked out the Greeks. They were living large, and the Romans show up, and they're like, nah, you're paying taxes to us now. And uh, they took over, like you do when you're the major military power on the planet. You don't care what other people think. That's how Rome rolled. That's how empires rolled. So, not a value judgment, just a blanket statement of fact, like a car is red doesn't mean I like or dislike the car, I'm just telling you, that's what color it is, but... So, when the Romans came into town, they need to collect taxes. And, uh, they don't speak Hebrew. Because that's nonsense. You're going to speak Latin, because we're Rome. And we're in charge now. So you speak our language as Latin. So, people learn Latin. Or they didn't. Uh, but Rome still needed to collect taxes, which requires some level of communication and a knowledge of the community to know who has what money or who can pay a little more on their taxes and stuff. So Rome would take people 
from the local citizens who were basically traitors to their own people or turncoats and say, hey, collect our taxes for us. And it was usually people of lower stature who had some dirt on everybody in town. And they would go, all right, cool. This is an easy way to get in good with the big dogs, the guys that are in charge. So you would betray your own people to collect money for this foreign empire that rolled up and set, rolled up in town and set up shop. To give you a modern analog, and this is completely, completely impossible, but if you pretend, you know, the, the movie Red Dawn, right? You see the movie Red Dawn, first it's uh, Russia, then it's Chinese, I mean North Korea, or whatever. Uh, I forget what the second movie was. They, they were going to use one, and then it was a big political deal, so they used the other one. And I forget which it was. Anyway, so imagine the Russians show up and invade America and take it over. And you're now a part of the Russian Empire. Like it or leave it. or Well, leave it would be death. That's how you leave empires. You die. So what do you do? Uh, if you were to decide to join the underground resistance and fight, you'd be a zealot. Like Simon the Zealot, another apostle. That's right, one of the apostles were a terrorist freedom fighter. Kind of neat. Shanking fools with a Sika, spelled S-I-C-A if you want to Google it later for the knife enthusiasts. It looks like a double-edged kukri. Uh, there were a couple of gladiators that fought with him. It's the more you know. And uh, so now you're in what is Russia. Communist Russia occupied Detroit or whatever. And uh, these Russians want to start collecting taxes. Get those sweet, sweet rubles that we now have to use to buy things. So, imagine how you would feel about an American citizen who decided to sell out to the Russians and then walk around every week knocking on your door collecting those sweet, sweet rubles for Uncle Putin. That's what a tax collector was. Whenever you see the Bible, if you're reading the King James Publicans, tax collectors, that's what they are. Nobody gave these guys the time of day. Nobody liked them. Nobody likes a snitch or a sellout or a tool. So that's that's what a tax collector was, and that's who Levi, Matthew, was. When Jesus rolls up and is like, hey, follow me now. And he was just like, done. Uh, there's a beautiful, the movie's called Miracle Maker. It's this claymation Jesus film. It's pretty fun. They, they throw a few tidbits in there I don't like, uh, but every Jesus movie's going to have that. Uh, it's, it's a lot like knowing how guns work. And you see a movie with a gun in it, and you're just like, no, it doesn't do that. That magazine would be way bigger. Why is he reloading? Oh, now he's reloading not enough. Why hasn't he had to reload yet? It's it's like that, but with Jesus stuff. The more you know about the Bible, anytime you watch... Like, not even knowing history stuff, just reading the Bible. Uh, the more you watch Bible shows, or uh, Bible movies, or Jesus movies, you're watching it, you just cringe. Every five minutes, you're like, ah, that's not how I would have done that. Ah, I feel like they're misrepresenting. Ah, it, always, just constantly. Anyway... Uh, this movie has less of that. It's called The Miracle Maker, a little claymation film. I think you can find the whole thing on YouTube for uh, for Freezy, but I would recommend going to buy it if you're an honorable man. Uh, but there's a scene. The scene in it is amazing, where Jesus comes to call Matthew, 
and he says, come and follow me. Matthew's like in a little booth counting coins, taking money from people on the docks. And he stops, looks straight up at Jesus, and he's got coins in his hand still from what he was doing. And he holds it up and just drops them. And he just rakes all the coins off onto the ground and gets up and walks out to follow Jesus. It's, it's awesome. The expression on his face, every second of that moment is fantastic. It's, it's a really good little claymation film. There's a bunch of international team that spent years, years of their lives putting this movie together uh, from all kinds of different uh, Eastern European and, and uh, Western European countries. And I, I don't know if there, I don't even know if there are any Americans involved in it, uh, but it's fantastic. All right, uh, now, the, so that's uh, that's a little bit about the guy that wrote it. Ah, so the book itself is characterized as being incredibly Jewish. Uh, Matthew, a Levite, as you could expect, was a Jew, like all of the twelve apostles and Jesus himself, born in Judea. They are they are Israelites. They uh, cherished the Old Testament and were looking for a Messiah. Everybody knew the Messiah was going to come from Abraham, obviously, because he had to be a Jew. And they knew he was going to be a son of David. There was a lot of promises to David's uh, king. Kingdom will never end. Uh, his reign is going to be eternal. A lot of promises are given to the son of David in the in the Old Testament. So they knew Jesus was going to be a son of David. Isaiah has a ton of messianic prophecies in it, even though modern Orthodox Jews don't want to acknowledge it. Because uh, then they would have to accept Jesus as their Messiah instead of uh, lying to themselves. Sorry, that's tangential, kind of. So the, the Gospel of Matthew is laid out very much so as a chronicle of Jesus' life and as an apologetic to first century Jews. And uh, it's it's just something to, to keep in your in mind uh, because usually when it's something doesn't make sense, it's because it's a reference to Jewish culture or the history of Israel as leads up to the first century. There's there's a lot of that in there. Um, <coughs> so uh, in a lot of places, uh, uh, other gospels do this too. But Matthew does it more than any of them, where he'll say, this was done to to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah, and he'll quote Isaiah. Or Jesus said this to fulfill the prophecy that, that shows up a lot as you're reading Matthew. And uh, most Bible translations worth their salt will have a little footnote in those places that'll show you, oh, okay, here's the reference, so you can go look it up for yourself. Uh, the New American Standard Bible does something kind of neat. They put any Old Testament uh, quote in all caps. So as you're reading uh, New American Standard Version or the New American Standard Bible, whichever, they they put any Old Testament quotation in all caps. Because sometimes it's not obvious they're quoting the Old Testament, uh, especially in the epistles or when Jesus is uh, telling somebody how it is. Sometimes he says, as it is written, or as Moses wrote, or as, uh, as Isaiah has said, or as the prophet has said. But other times he'll just give him an answer, and the answer will be a straight-up word-for-word quote of the Septuagint or something. Now, uh, let's go into an overview. 
all Gospels are going to follow roughly the same format. They begin with an origin story about Jesus. Then he starts teaching and working miracles. And he kind of travels around the area. Uh, you can, you'd imagine, you know, they, they've got traveling speakers nowadays, right? Uh, where they'll do, they'll go from town to town doing conferences and stuff. This is that's what rabbis did: is they would literally just wander from town to town and they would teach at random places. And that's what people people did: is they go outside of town to uh, to watch or listen to whatever preacher was in town this week. So you, that's why you have so many stories that sound the same. That's why he seems to be saying the same message in slightly different ways. You've got eyewitnesses recording it, and like any traveling preacher, uh, most even even a modern American evangelist, if you tra- if you follow an evangelist uh, preacher, you notice they only have about ten sermons. They repeat themselves a lot. You know why? It's a new group of people they're walking up, talking to. They haven't heard this sermon yet, and it's a really well-articulated point that he spent a lot of time honing the presentation of. That's why evangelists come into town, and they blow your socks off. They're so much better than your regular preacher. Well, your preacher only worked on that sermon for like three or four days. And he probably hasn't practiced it more than the one time. That evangelist has given that same sermon a hundred, five hundred times. Of course it's going to be polished and sound good. So that's that's what Jesus does. Uh, and then, of course, he eventually starts butting head with the Pharisees more and more as the book progresses. Uh, to the point where they finally say, ah, we had enough of it. Uh, let's get this guy killed. Uh, they run him up in a uh, sham trial, hand him over to the Romans, and pressure the Romans to crucify him. He gets plugged in the ground, and then three days later, pops out of the ground like a fresh daisy, full of eternal life, shows up to all the apostles and says, hey guys, uh, you got to go tell people. Good deal. And that's the good news. And that's why they're called Gospels. They're a historical narrative about the life of Jesus, which is in itself good news for humanity. Matthew laser focuses on a Jewish audience. And so he pulls in a lot of Isaiah, he pulls in a lot of stuff. Now, let's do an overview of the book. Matthew's origin story, focus, it starts out with a, uh, with a genealogy. Right in there, at, from the get-go, first thing he does is has a genealogy. Uh, there's a cool children's book called Matthew's Begats, where a guy set the whole genealogy in Matthew to uh, a little, like, acoustic guitar and it's done like a little kid's folk song. It's it's delightful. Matthew's Begats. So, uh, he's starts at Abraham. Once again, it's very Jew-centric. Everybody knows where Abraham comes from. He's establishing the lineage of Jesus in the line of the Judean kings. And he starts with Abraham and moves on through down to David. Obed, Jesse, David. And then he moves from David to Solomon. And he goes down through Solomon, the line of the kings, the line of succession for the throne. Uh, uh, Rehoboam 
and uh, all the way down through eventually Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ. And that's how he starts his gospel, his book about Jesus. And it's now he condenses the actual genealogy and he skips over uh, a, a few places. He skips over the, uh, he, he compresses, he'll jump from like a, a grandfather to a, uh, a grandson. He'll go from grandfather to grandson. He will go from, uh, I think at one point he skips like uh, Ahaz, Amaziah, Josiah. He skips a bunch of guys. To, to be like great, great, great grandparents. He skips about four generations of one go at one point. And he does it for literary reasons. Uh, because it, they're still all right in line. They're still all in the correct order. Uh, he just skips some guys to compress it to these uh, tight three groups of 14. Uh, to have, have an easily remembered uh, a verbal kind of thing. This is one of the things that makes it very... Uh, Hebrew. It's not uncommon in ancient genealogies to skip generations to compress it to even numbers or consistent sets of numbers. Uh, so it's it's not a big deal. What is uh, noteworthy? Also, I'm gonna I'm gonna sidetrack a little bit about the. Uh, no, no, I'm gonna I'll get more on the genealogy later. I'm gonna keep going. So he's, he made it a, a Jewish genealogy, very Hebrew centric. Uh, very focused on Christ, on Jesus being the line of succession as the king of Israel. Now, uh, he goes from there into John the Baptist, and Jesus gets baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, He has not sinned. He does not need to repent of his sin and be baptized as John the Baptist is calling for. Uh, however, it is required by God that you obey his law. And at that time, John the Baptist was a prophet of God, preaching that all must repent and receive uh, baptism. So Jesus does that because that's what it is expected. He obeys. He's told to do something and he does it. And then he goes out into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan for 40 days. Well, he's out in the wilderness fasting for 40 days without food or water and then is tempted by Satan. And there are the big three temptations. Every time Jesus quotes scripture to get out of temptation, he quotes almost exclusively Deuteronomy. And then uh, Satan finally leaves him alone and he comes out of the wilderness and begins preaching. I would assume after hitting the nearest McDonald's he could find. Uh, so he begins preaching, and that's uh, around about chapter 4 or 5 in Matthew. And that's, we jump right into the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Sermon on the Mount spans about five chapters. You got the Beatitudes, where, you know, it's the, the meek will inherit the earth, uh, the blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called children of God, all that stuff. 
the be this, be this way, the be attitudes. That's not where the name comes from, but it it's kind of a funny, funny pun that you're able to perform because of later English. Uh, and then he moves into, you have heard it said, but I say to you, where he's not contradicting the law, but he's contradicting the written Torah. Or not, not Torah, sorry, Torah is the law. He's contradicting the oral traditions. Pardon me. The, the man's laws put around it. Uh, where they had these, these funny picadellos where they were starting to develop loopholes. You know, oh, don't murder your brother, but you could call him an idiot, uh, but you'll have to pay a fine to the temple. Uh, but if you only call him a fool, then you guys are square. And Jesus kind of flips it on his head. He said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, uh, you're guilty of murder if you even call him a fool. That kind of hatred and dismissal is is tantamount to murder, that disregard. And so he uh, he's, he's upending all of it, saying, no, the spirit of the law must not be violated. If you know why the law is there, don't go against why the law is there. That's silly. And so that's the, uh, I, I, there's probably a fancy name for that section, but it's after, uh, it's the, the later portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And then, uh, as you go through Matthew, there's slowly a more heavy influence, uh, there's a heavier emphasis on signs and wonders and works that he's doing. He's doing miracles, and he's, uh, he's, as as it goes, he, he starts doing miracles, and then he starts teaching a little more as you get, uh, as they, they sprinkle the miracles in, and as he's teaching more, he starts using more and more parables. And he's traveling over the countryside. As he gets closer to Jerusalem, he starts butting heads with the Pharisees and the Sadducees more and more. Now, those are the two camps of first century Jews at the time in uh, in Jerusalem. The Pharisees were really pompous religious types who were legalists. They had all kinds of crazy laws. And uh, they followed all kinds of extra men's laws. They would tithe not only on their income, but the spices in their spice cabinet. They'd take a tenth out and made sure they gave it to the temple. Um, they, the Sadducees were rationalists, we'd call them today. They didn't believe any magic anything. We're just Jews because we're born here, and we read the Torah because we're supposed to read Torah because we're Jews. God doesn't exist. Angels don't exist. There's no afterlife. We're just here. Well, probably God exists and we read the Torah, but no angels, no resurrection, no nothing after this. It's just us here reading a book, being occupied by Rome. And then uh, there's another group called Scribes. These are the dudes who are like, man, I just copy words. Don't don't deal with this. Uh, They also could be called lawyers because they did spend all day writing and rewriting the law. They were Google. Hey, where does it say this? Hey, what's the law say about... Well, they spend all day writing and rewriting the law because you don't have copy machines. Well, the guy who does that all day is going to be pretty knowledgeable just as a byproduct of writing and rewriting writing the law over and over again. Um, so they're, they're the ones... So it's usually when you see lawyers in some of the newer translations or scribes, that's that's who they're talking about is uh, 
these group of guys, these cats. And then uh, the priests, of course, are the other group. Um, but usually Pharisees and Sadducees are the two, like, theological slants, the two parties, the two groups, main groups. Uh, and he, he starts butting heads with them quite a bit, and they start trying to trip him up and make him look stupid in front of the crowds. And Jesus is, uh, well, the Son of God. And also, he's just a really sharp cat and always gives them the one answer that doesn't answer their question, does answer their question, and makes them look stupid all at the same time with only about five words or less. And so eventually, everything comes to a head. He rolls into Jerusalem for the last time and starts getting really cryptic about his uh, uh, with his apostles, saying, hey guys, it's not looking good. The, uh, the Son of Man has come to die. Things are going to happen. The Messiah must die first. And he just flat out tells them that. And they go, what? No, he doesn't. And they, they ignore it. And then he goes and dies. And their minds are blown. And uh, after after a body was buried, they didn't have any crematoriums or anything. What they did was they buried you. And uh, they'd wrap the body up, they'd bury it. And after a couple of days, or after, after the, a day or so, they'd come back. And they would, uh, they'd wrap the body incense and stuff to keep it from smelling as bad. Uh, burial incenses. So, the, uh, Mary and Martha come, or not Martha, Mary and, uh, some of the other women, I forget who else they name. They show up, they're gonna treat Jesus' body, but see, after he was crucified and buried, he was buried on the Sabbath, or, uh, on the pet. He was, uh, crucified and buried on, uh, the... Passover, man, I don't know why my brain did not have that word, on Passover, the Feast of Passover, he is, bam, dead and in the ground that same day. Sundown on Passover starts a Sabbath day. The The day after Passover is always a Sabbath, and then also you have the weekly Sabbath day. And then Sunday, that's three days and three nights, The which is the... Uh, the sign of Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, which comes up in, in Matthew. I don't know if the other ones mention that. Uh, but they ask for a sign, and he says, you'll, you'll get, you've had signs and wonders. You'll get no sign but the sign of Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. So he pops up out of the... No, the angels, that's right, the angels are there. The tomb blows open, and uh, they're like, what are you looking for the living among the dead? Nah, he's, he's over there. And they go to tell everybody... And Jesus meets him in the way, sees all the apostles, and says, Hey, and this part's called the Great Commission. Go and be baptized. Uh, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to uh, observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. The Great Commission, what all Christians are supposed to do, is go tell people about Jesus and uh, teach them. And discipleship's not, not happening nowadays in the church, most church churches by and large. And even when it does happen, it's simply read your Bible, pray every day, and here is, you know, just read your Bible, let's do a Bible study and talk about what the Bible says about, let's talk about what the teacher's personal theological slant is about, and not, alright bud, let's dig in, here's how you do a Bible study, here's how you do Greek, here's how you do Hebrew, here's what a commentary is. Nobody gets to that level from the local church. Whereas the uh, Jesus was known 
as an educated man, the Pharisees couldn't handle how smart this guy was. And then in Acts, when James and John keep getting drugged before the high, the high priests and the Pharisees and questioned and grilled over what they're doing, still talking about this Jesus guy, we killed him. And it's mentioned that they could tell that they had been with Jesus. Because these guys were smart. Smarter than the average fisherman. They knew things. They had answers. They had arguments. The church isn't creating people like that anymore. I keep having side rants. Now, uh, that's the book of Matthew in a nutshell. Go read it. It's awesome. It's a little longer. And uh, I would recommend having your Old Testament handy to uh, look up some cross-references and stuff. And be like, oh, that's neat. Whenever you come across a little doodad. Now, uh, the genealogy, I'm going to get back to the genealogy now. There is another genealogy of Jesus in Luke, and they don't match. And so what do we do with that? Well, there's a couple of different ways to handle it. Uh, One is to say, oh, the Bible's a lie. God is a lie. I'm done. Everything's a lie. Of course, these two things are marginally incoherent and so I will now abandon thousands of years of Christian tradition that hasn't had a problem with this because ah! or calmly intelligently look at what are some of the options and then if none of those options are sufficient for you maybe start looking at different ways to view your Bible and to view Jesus. But to jump right to, oh, there's a minor perceived inconsistency. I'm done now, is is a little silly. The genealogy in Luke, the, the oldest explanation for this, is the genealogy in Luke is of Mary, and the genealogy in Matthew is of Joseph. Because the heritage, the line of authority from king would be firstborn son, to firstborn son, to firstborn son. In order for Jesus to qualify as king of Israel, he would have to be of the line of firstborn son to firstborn son. And as the adopted son, the firstborn adopted son of Joseph, he would meet that qualification to be of the line of kings, legally. The... uh, in Luke, we'll see the tricky part is it comes all the way down, and then it it says, uh, it starts. Yeah, Luke goes backwards, which is a little odd, first off. Luke starts off backwards, and then has a different father for Joseph. But he doesn't say, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of, the son of. It's There's a weird phrasing in the Greek, which is what people use to say it could be understood to say Jesus assumed son of Joseph which was of Eli and then the line so if they mention Jesus his grandfather on his mother's side and then goes back from there that phrasing makes some sense could have that meaning and then you go he goes all the way back to Adam because Luke is writing to a Gentile in a Gentile audience. And so, they're not going to care about Abraham. But, a lot of them could know. 
See, the, the Hebrew scriptures were revered as ancient wisdom. There was a, there's a, a universal reverence for ancient wisdom, even of Hebrew wisdom among the Greeks. And you, you see an acknowledgement that the Greeks, uh, some of the Greek philosophers got a lot of stuff right. Paul quotes Greek philosophers and poets to uh, when he's talking to Greeks in Athens. He's like, some of your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. He's, he's quoting Greek poets there. Uh, that's the precedent then for a lot of the early church fathers to then start digging into Greek philosophy and they twist it to fit the Bible. And then the Gnostics twisted the Bible to fit Greek philosophy. That's where they start getting off uh, far afield. So, but there was, a, there was a reverence of the Hebrew scriptures as ancient wisdom. Stuff that was old was thought to, to know better. Um, and be worth listening to and useful. So, having Jesus of the line of Adam, of the first man created in the Hebrew scriptures, would mean something. To say, oh, he's the line of Adam. And then... Luke ends in son of God. So he does so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. Son of Adam, son of God. So he connects that then. Jesus, son of God. And he's setting that precedent. Because that's the part that matters. They don't care about Old Testament prophecy. They don't care about the line of the Hebrew kings. And so he follows Mary, Jesus' blood lineage. Uh, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and she conceived and bore a son. Uh, what little we understand about pregnancy leads us to understand that Jesus was probably genetically related to Mary, because that's how being born works. Uh, he would not have been genetically related to Joseph, but he would have been genetically related to Mary. Cool. So his bloodline would then come from Mary through what is likely her father, Eli, all the way down. He traces that up back through Adam. So that, uh, the, the, the tree forks, pardon me, at uh, David. David's son, Nathan, is the line that Mary comes from. Whereas David's son, Solomon, comes down through, uh, or sorry, yeah, the, the, the other line, the kingly line, comes down through Solomon, who inherited the throne, down to Rehoboam, right? Yeah, because Jeroboam had the northern kingdom. Anyway, the, as, as we get around to it, uh, what you have is uh, some people don't accept the genealogy in Luke as being the genealogy of Mary. They have some other ways of parsing that um, that I just I haven't looked into that much because I haven't been that interested. The Mary one uh, satisfies my curiosity, and I have a life to live besides digging in too deep in the weeds on a lot of this stuff. Um, once, once I feel like a question's been answered and I'm satisfied, I'll move on. And then if something catches my attention later as an anomaly, okay, well now I'm going to start digging it out. I've got to reopen and go, oh, well, all right, we found some new stuff. Um, so genealogy of Mary, that's where I take it. Um, the biggest argument I've heard against it being the genealogy of Mary is, well, ancient genealogies didn't mention women because we all know the past hated women. Nobody in the past had a mom or a wife that they loved. That's stupid. Um, yeah, definitely. The, the patriarchy-filled Hebrew genealogy in Matthew would definitely never mention a woman that was the wife of the king's best friend who he murdered. David, who had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. No, they wouldn't mention 
Um, you know, a lady who pretended to be a, a temple prostitute. Uh, oh, yeah, wait, Judah's son by Tamar. Um, now, well, I mean, they wouldn't mention an actual prostitute like Rahab or a foreign woman, a Moabitess like Ruth. Oh, all of those women get mentioned. Huh. Okay. Well, um, and then of course, uh, for issues that are in the, uh, gospel, there's so much stuff, man. I'm, I'm going to hit the highlights. You have, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, becomes a big, uh, sticking point for a lot of people. Um, obviously it's the centerpiece of every gospel. It's the reason we have a gospel. It's the reason we have everything that we have. Um, there's a good... There's a lot of good stuff on history, historicity of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to stop promising to put things in the descriptions, because I just never remember by the time I start loading stuff onto my computer what I said in which video that I was going to add in description. Um, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. I'll, I'll look it up. I'll, I'll probably mention it later. We're, I'm, I'm getting long in the tooth now. Uh, but the resurrection is important, and uh, the short of it is, why would people be willing to die for a lie. You have people burned at the stake, hung on crosses, murdered and tortured. People that were there and saw with their own, said that they saw with their own eyes a risen Christ are tortured and horribly murdered. Why would they do that for a lie? They clearly had to believe what they saw as actual historical truth. And if they're crazy, why does everything else that they do 100% coherent and logical? Everything that they do is incredibly logical. If you've ever talked to a crazy homeless person who said he invented the electric car, after about 10 minutes of talking to him, he starts saying a lot of extra weird things that don't flow logically. They're not, they, he's not thinking logically. He's not living his entire life as though he had actually invented the electric car and the government stole his patent for it. Uh, actual homeless guy line that I got one time. It was, it was a fascinating dude to talk to. Uh, there's no way that was true. But we, we see them behave in perfectly logical, consistent manners and be willing to die for what they said. That um, C.S. Lewis's summation is awesome in that Jesus is either an insane man who convinced other people who were also kind of insane, or he um, he was insane, or he was a, an abject liar who was willing to die for a lie, and had other people who were willing to die for that lie, or he's the risen son of God. Those are the only three options. And uh, everybody is too rational and intelligent to be crazy. So, um... You're left with another option. Uh, another fun tidbit is... Uh, oh, that, my notes were said resurrection for another reason. Uh, when Jesus is refuting the Pharisees, or Sadducees, about the resurrection, they come to him a question, they're going to stump him, and he says, uh, they, they give him a, a, some silly question about, well, how is the resurrection happening? And he's like, look, that's not how it works. Uh, sets him straight, and then to prove that there is life after death, he says, God says he is God, is God of the living. Or, or God says that he is God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not was. He, excuse me, he is God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
which implies they're still alive if he still is their god, not was their god. Uh, which is fascinating because it means the verb tense of the words used in the Old Testament matter. So when you're reading your Bible, it's worth paying attention to the details, but not early on. But as you get going, as you understand more of the Bible, as you start to understand Bible translations and who's got a theological bend where, paying attention to those details becomes important. Also, Jesus mentions a, uh, a psalm at one point as a counterbalance. They, they ask a question and he's like, you know what? I'll answer another one of your questions if you answer my question. And his question is, in, uh, he quotes a psalm and says, uh, who's the, who's the, whose son is the Messiah going to be? And they all said the son of David. And he says, okay, the Messiah is the son of David. And then he quotes a psalm where, written by David that says, the Lord said to my Lord, and it's a prophetic psalm about the Messiah. And Jesus says, how is it that David calls the Messiah Lord if it's the son of David? How does that work? And they, everybody gets quiet. And they leave him alone. And of course the answer to that is, well, he would have to be both God and man. Exactly. Uh, so, Psalms, there are prophetic information in what is a collection of poems. David was a prophet in his way, uh, which is kind of fascinating. And you can dig into more to that. And that's all I've got. This is Wax Long, and I keep forgetting to plug stuff. I if, Wherever you're watching this, I have this in other places, if that's more convenient. I have a podcast. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, my podcast can be found in most places. Um... I started putting links in the description to all those things because I always forget here and I feel like it's a, it's a big waste of time. But I'll at least say it here the one time. I've got podcasts in places. I have a website, which is uh, lead to live lead the number 2 dot L-I-V-E. So yeah, it's dot live, but it's spelled exactly the same as live. So I like to think lead to live. The whole goal is to become a better leader of your family and in your community by following Christ's example. Follow the leader. <laughs> I'm so witty. Uh, so yeah, uh, come join me. Let's have some fun and, uh, learn about God, but, uh, definitely never take my word for it. And I will see you next time. Godspeed.